the title of our lesson today, our sermon, is My Father's House. Our key words for our worshipers in training. A couple of our worshipers in training are not here today, but they are here with us in spirit, I'm sure. The worship, key words for our worshiper training are words that the kids learn in Sunday school, and then when they come into the service, they listen out for those words. Our key words for our worship and training are behold. No, that's, that's actually last week's. Yeah, that's actually last week's key words for Our key words for worship and training is wisdom, faith, or father, and temple. Wisdom, father, and temple. So turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 40 through 52, and let's read together. The child continued to grow and to become strong. He was increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. But supposed him to be in the caravan, and they went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and their acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This is a reading of the word of the Lord. If any of you here ever get a chance to meet my mom and talk with her, you may hear a story about me. You will actually probably hear a lot of stories about me. But when I was a kid about the same age as Jesus, actually I was a couple years younger, about 11, 10 or 11, um, my family, my mom and my dad carried us to the fair. And we were a very large family. I have three brothers and three sisters. We used to all get in a big giant station wagon and travel everywhere together, if you all remember those old station wagons. And we went to the fair together, and I got lost. Uh, My mom, I got separated from the rest of my family. And my mom and my dad panically ran all over the fair looking for me. And when they found me, they found me on a -a tilt-a-whirl. And she will tell you this story. And the the carny, the guy running the tilt-a-whirl, was so tickled at the laughing that I was laughing as I was spinning around in that thing that he just let me keep on riding for free. And I must have stayed on that tilt-a-whirl for 20 minutes. Lord knows how I didn't get sick. But my mom and my dad came and they found me riding on this tilty whirl. And they were so relieved when they found me and they scolded me for slipping away from them. But I really did have a good time. Now, why would I want to bring up me and talk about this? Because the reality is that each and every one of us in this room are so susceptible to being separated from our Father who art in heaven. Amen. We get on the rides in this world 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we begin to enjoy and indulge ourselves in Vanity Fair, in the emptiness and the meaningless, meaninglessness, boy, that's a big word, of this world that we live in. And what we're going to see today in this passage as we finish up the early childhood of Jesus is the focus of a righteous and godly family and the focus of a son who desires to do his father's will. So with that said, let's go ahead and look at what we're doing, uh, look at what we're talking about today. Today we're going to see Jesus grows up. We're going to see a focus on Jesus' remarkable understanding of his relationship with his heavenly father. We're going to see God's favor upon him. And we're going to see him to continue to walk in the divine mission that has been given to him. We are going to see a household that serves God. And we are going to see that our familial claims should not take precedence over our call to serve God. So let's look together. In that first verse, uh, verses 40 to 42, look at verse 40 with me. It says this. Now the child continued to grow and to become strong. He was being filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Now this verse, verse 40, actually bookends with verse 52. If you look at verse 40, we just read that. If you look at verse 52, look what it says. It says, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. So we had these two bookends and then we had this story in the middle of the bookend. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus is growing in stature. What is stature? He's physically, he's a man. He's a young boy, he's 12 years old, and last time we saw him together, he was at his house and there was a bunch of wise men giving him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Well, this is 10 years later, and Jesus is now 12 years old, and what is he doing? He is physically growing. We have to understand that Jesus was the Word made flesh, that he grew up and he struggled with all of the things that we struggle with except for sin. He struggled, struggled with being tired. He probably struggled, I would guess that he struggled with being picked on by his brothers and sisters, right? He struggled with all kind of things. But he was a 100% God, but he was also 100% man. And as 100% man, he had to grow in wisdom. And we're going to see in today's story, in today's scriptures, that Jesus knew where to go to find proper wisdom. And so he grows in wisdom. Now that is one of our key words for our worship and training and none of the girls are here today, but what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is applied knowledge. The Bible speaks of wisdom and tells us that wisdom is important. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Proverbs 3.13 and this is what it says. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and gets understanding. You want joy in your life? Get wisdom and get understanding. And so all through the Proverbs, you'll see this comparison between the wise and what is the opposite of a wise man? A fool. So we are either wise or foolish. 
and Jesus is growing in wisdom. His understanding of who he is is becoming more and more apparent to him as he walks in his Father's will. Think about that. We talked about this in the past, but in Psalm 23, as a kid, he would have went to the temple, and just as you and I just sang, take time to be holy, one of the hymns in the Jewish synagogue would have been, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me the light. And they would have sung that song out. That's what the Psalms are. They're songs. It's the Jewish hymn book. And so as a little boy, Jesus would have went to the synagogue and he would have sung over and over again Psalm 23 in the same way that we sing Amazing Grace. And there came a time in Jesus' life as he grew in wisdom that he began to realize that this psalm was about him. He stood in front of a group of men that were about to nail him to a cross and he said, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. My sheep know me, and I know my sheep, and when I call, they come. But that knowledge, that wisdom, that understanding came with growth as he matured as a man. So he grew in wisdom, and he grew in stature. Verse 41 says that his parents would go to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. So all of the righteous families in Israel would be faithful to observe God's commands. And this would be one of those commands, observing the Passover. Now, when we think of Passover, what do we immediately think of? We think of Egypt. We think of the Passover lamb. We think of the blood over the door and on the side post. And we think of the deliverance of God's people from slavery. Now think about the implications of this. Jesus and his family is going to Jerusalem to worship the Passover festival as a remembrance of what God had done for his people. And just in a very near future, one of Jesus' apostles, Paul, is going to remind us in his writings that Jesus is the Passover lamb. So the very celebration that they are going to should be pointing us and those people to the sacrifice that God would make to redeem his own. It's really cool to think about. Let's look at the book of Exodus chapter 12. I want to remind you, this is going to be a little bit of a long read, but I want to read Exodus 12 to you. And let's look and and listen to the Passover message. Now the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt... This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all of the congregation of Israel and say, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male. Very important. Unblemished male. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. 
Do not eat of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until the morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you will eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. All right, we'll stop there with the, uh, with the passage. So Moses and Aaron are commanded by God to observe the Passover. And what we will find is, is that the central location of the Passover goes from the household in Egypt to the temple in Jerusalem at a later time. And so all of the children of Israel would observe the Passover by coming to Jerusalem for the sacrifice. And they would stay there. Most of them would stay there two or three days. The celebration would actually last seven days. So his parents would go to Jerusalem each year to observe the Passover. And they were a righteous family. Now, in verse 42, it said, When Jesus became 12 years old, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. All right. The Old Testament commands Jewish men to come to Jerusalem for three annual feasts. So what happens is we all have big holidays around here. Like for us, it's be probably, I would say, Easter, Christmas, and what? Thanksgiving, would you say that would probably be about the three biggest holidays for us? Well, the Jewish people have three major holidays that they celebrate every year, and they still celebrate it to this day. Those three celebrations would be Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, or Booths. We can look in the book of Exodus again at chapter 23, verses 14 to 17, and we can see God commanding them to observe these. This is Exodus 23, 14 through 17. It says this, three times a year, you will celebrate a feast to me. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. You are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Eve. For in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall also observe the feast of the harvest, of the first fruits of your labors, from what you sow in the field. Also the feast of ingatherings at the end of the year, when you gather in your fruit the labors from your field. So God has given this commandment to the children of Israel. Three times a year you are to have a festival and observe uh, the commands that God has given you. That first festival is Passover. And what are we celebrating there? We're celebrating the fact that God passed over the children of Israel and destroyed all of his enemies in delivering them so that they may go to the promised land. Then there was also the uh, the feast of uh, Pentecost, right? Uh, Which is uh, 50 days after Passover. Pentecost means 50. And so 50 days after the Passover, they would celebrate uh, Pentecost. And y'all remember in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church? Remember? There was pe- people from all over the world came to uh, Jerusalem 
and, and, and they were speaking in tongues. You remember that story? Well, they were there celebrating the, past, uh, the Pentecost. Fifty days after Passover, they all came together to celebrate that feast. And then the last feast would be the Feast of uh, Tabernacles or the Feast of Booze. If you're from here in Savannah, you might see the Jewish community over in, um, on the south side or east side over there. Uh, they, they built a little booth in their backyard and put lights around it. And it's a celebration, a remembrance of the time that they lived in tents in the wilderness experience. And so all three of these festivals are festivals to remind the people of Israel the things that God had done for them. The Passover being very important, the highest of all the days. And so they would all come three times a year to this fe- these festivals to celebrate. And Jesus and his mother and his father, because they were righteous, they followed God's command and observed these feasts. <clears throat> so Jesus, uh, the Jewish Passover begins the Jewish year. It's the, the Passover is the first day of the year. It's, it happens on the 15th of Nisan, which in our calendars would be either March or April. If you've ever noticed that um, Easter, all, the time for Easter always changes every year. It's like not always on the same, at the same time. It's a different time. And it's because that these, these feasts, these uh, holidays are celebrated based on the lunar calendar, not the solar calendar. And so uh, this feast of uh, Passover would be in March or April. All of the men were required to go, and the pious women would come along, like the ones who were really faithful would come along. It's kind of the opposite in our churches nowadays, isn't it? A lot of times it's the men that stay at home and the women all come to the church, but uh, maybe we got it on its head there. But... 60 miles as a crow flies, how far it was from Nazareth to Jerusalem. So that means that this family and all of the families from Nazareth would gather together in big caravans for safety reasons, and they would all travel together to come down to Jerusalem. And it would take, it's about 80 miles from, Jerusalem, from Nazareth to Jerusalem, or 60 miles. The problem with the 60-mile path is that it goes to a place called Samaria, and the Samaritans were the dirty, those other people. And we don't have anything to do with those people. So most of them would literally walk 20 miles out of the way in order to get around that crowd and come. And so they would actually walk an extra 20 miles. And this 80-mile trek would usually take them about three to four days. They'd walk about 20 miles a day to get there. So this is Jesus' 12th year. And in Jewish recognition, he's about one year from being considered a man. Now, the, it, we know that in modern in Jewish circles, they have things called bar mitzvahs. And a bar mitzvah is the celebration of a young man becoming a, a young boy becoming a man. And it always takes place when? On their 13th birthday. So this is right at the time when Jesus is coming to the point where he is going to be recognized as a man. He's still 12. He's not quite a man yet in their eyes. But that's the, the, this time. So we've seen this righteous family. We've seen it over and over again. It's one of the things that we have that has been emphasized in all of the lessons that we've learned about Jesus' childhood. <clears throat> Mary was righteous, and Joseph was righteous, and Jesus was righteous. And remember, what do we mean when we say that they were righteous? It means that when God looked down upon them, because of their faith in God, they were clothed in the righteousness of God. The thing that makes you righteous to God is not what you do. It's who you are. 
And if you are here today, you are here this morning, and you are in Christ, just like Noah was in the ark, you're safe from God's wrath, but you are also clothed in his protection and his safety. When he looks at you, he does not see the sinner that you are. He sees the son that he sent. So what happened when Jesus died on the cross? He died to take away how many of our sins? All of them. And not only when we turn and trust him does he take away all of our sin, but he gives us all of his righteousness. So when the father looks at you, he's seeing you clothed in his son. And you say, well, that don't make a whole lot of sense. But he's been teaching us that since the very beginning. Do you remember that Adam and Eve were naked in the garden? And they were ashamed. They were hiding in the bushes trying to cover themselves up with fig leaves. Right? And what did God do? He killed a lamb. And he took the clothes, the skin from that lamb. And he covered his children with that lamb's skin. It's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He died on that cross. And God took his righteousness and covered your nakedness and your insufficiencies. And when we try to live our lives pleasing to God through our works, we're simply putting fig leaves over his own son's righteousness. Now, they are righteous, and their acts, the things that they do, they're going to church, the temple, they're praying, they're teaching their children how to live the right way. All of those things are good, and they are all expressions of God at work in them. When you are clothed in Jesus' righteousness, you walk as Jesus walked. Amen. We're not perfect, but if he is in us, he's going to come out of us. Yes. You see how that works? So it's not just to say that, okay, well, now I'm clothed, and when God looks down at me, he sees his son, Jesus, and now I can just live however I want because he's got me covered. The child of God who understands what Jesus did on the cross for them, the child of God whose heart has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, the child of God who has his words written on his heart of flesh and is filled with the Spirit of God understands what Jesus did for him. And because of what Jesus has given to him, he now wants to return it back. You see? There's a desire to live a life pleasing to the Father. And so these parents are righteous. They are righteous because they have the righteousness of faith. But they also walk righteously because of who they are on the inside. It plays out in their life. They follow God's commands. They follow God's word. They know God's word. And they teach their children to do the same. And so, and we've seen now this righteous family, we've seen this family make their trek down to Jerusalem. Now we're going to see a rescue mission, right? As if Jesus needs saving. So it says in verse 43, as they were returning, after finishing the days of the feast, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know. I want you to notice that they stayed for the whole feast. The feast would last seven days. It was a big party for seven whole days. And most of the people would come down for a couple of days and then they would leave. 
But this family stayed for the entire feast. They enjoyed the communion and the fellowship of the people of God. They enjoyed being in the temple. Can we say the same? I can't tell you the number of times in my life that I have said, I wish that preacher would hurry up and quit preaching. I'm hungry. Right? I can't tell you the number of times when we used to have Sunday night services that I'd be watching Wonderful World at Disney or uh, Hee Haw or whatever it was that my grandparents had on the TV and I would be mad that I had to get up as a kid and go to church because I was missing some Wild Kingdom. I was missing Marlon Perkins and the Wild Kingdom on Sunday night. And the reality is, is it's so easy for us to indulge in the joys and the, the things of this world as opposed to delighting in the things of God. And we're going to see in this passage that that's not the case with Jesus, and it should convict each and every one of us that it should be the case with us as well. We should love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, and all of our might, and we should love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And yes, Jesus did tell the woman that God is a spirit and those that worship him worship him in spirit and in truth. But there is not a single one of us in this room that are omniscient or omnipresent. You can't worship him in spirit and in truth unless your body is here. There's a lot of people sitting out in in boats right now on the river and in golf carts on the course saying, oh, I can worship God here just as good as I can there. Any of you that have ever played golf know that that is impossible to do. Any of you that's ever been fishing know that that's impossible to do. You're not worshiping God. You're worshiping your own desires. And the reality is we need to be here. Not because the preacher tells you that, but because God's word tells you that. And if his love is in your heart, if his love is in your heart, Nobody should have to tell you that. Amen? And we're loving our neighbors, even the ones that get on our nerves. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning, right? There's some people at church you just don't want to hug or shake hands with or talk to. Jesus shed his blood for them just as much as he did for you. And we have to love one another. All right, so with that said, uh, they returned to... uh, they stayed the whole seven days. Verse 44, but so, supposing him to be in the caravan, they went a day's journey and they began searching for him among their relatives and their acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. All right. Now, in modern days, defects would have been called in and Mary and Joseph would have been thrown in jail for not paying attention to their kids, right? Not keeping their kids under wraps. But the reality is, is in a caravan like that, you all travel together for safety. And usually all of the kids would be hanging out together and playing and goofing off on the road home. And so it wasn't that Mary and Joseph didn't care about Jesus. It was just they were heading back to their home and they were with all of their family and all of their friends. And it was just one big caravan going up. And what they didn't realize is that Jesus had hung back. He stayed back in in Jerusalem. He didn't go. There is one thing that I want you to see, and you'll see it here in just a minute. Oftentimes when you're reading the scriptures, in this passage it said that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Yes. Yes. They went up to Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about the geography of that nation, they're up in Galilee, and Jerusalem is 80 miles what? Yes. South. Yes. So in, in mine and your understanding, they're not going up. 
They're going down. Right? If I was to tell you I'm going down to New York or up to Miami, you would be like, what's wrong with you? But you'll see that a lot of times in Scripture. You'll see a lot of times it said they went up to the temple. Well, the, the, there's an emphasis there on an ascension to God's presence. And now they've been in this temple worship ceremony, this festival for seven days, and it'll say now they're going down to Galilee. The temple is on a mountain, and you had to ascend up. Matter of fact, most of the last few psalms, like Psalm, I, I, I don't quote me on this, it's like 112, 111 through 117 are called the Psalms of Ascension. And the children of Israel, as they were traveling up to the temple, would sing all of those seven songs as they were coming up to worship God. And so when you read in your Bible and it says they were coming up, it's not talking about north and south. It's talking about the spiritual track of going from where we are down here in the valleys to the mountaintop. You see how that works? Prayerfully, every one of us in this room are going up. That's a good thing. Going up is better than going down. Amen. So they uh, return after the feast. They thought Jesus was with them. And so now they're going to have to go on a rescue mission. They're going to have to go and what they think is to save Jesus. All right. In verse 46, it said, it happened that after three days, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. For any of you who are a part of our Sunday school class in the morning time, one of the things you'll learn is, I really do would like for you to ask questions. I have a tendency to keep talking and talking, and I like for other people to interrupt and say, hey, I have a question. Why? Why would I want you to ask me a question when we're teaching a class? Because it means that you're thinking about it, that you're engaged, that you're wanting to understand. You see? And so Jesus is here at the temple, and he is asking questions and answering the teacher's. This is the only account in all of the Bible that we see Jesus taking instructions. Every other time we see Jesus in the Bible, he's the one giving the instructions. Why is he taking instructions? Well, he's a 12-year-old boy, and he is what? Growing in wisdom. He's asking the teachers. Now, these same teachers will later be addressed as scribes and lawyers, right? And what we're going to find out is these very same teachers that are amazed at his question and his reasoning and his insight right now are going to be the very ones that want to nail him to the tree because he's going to condemn them because he comes to a realization that they are the problem, not the answer. So Jesus in this passage is portrayed as one who has a thirst for spiritual things. To understand and discuss matters of eternal importance. Why do I bring that up? Think about the things that we talk about. How many of y'all have ever been a part of a Sunday school class or a Bible study where it ended too quick? Like everybody was having a really good time and you were talking about a lot of exciting things and learning a bunch of exciting things and then everybody just had to go home. Right? Well, one day we're going to get to heaven and the discussions won't have to stop. But the reality is, is that The true child of God thirsts after the important things, the eternal things, the things of God's word. 
And how quickly after I step down off of this podium and get out here and start shaking hands, do I begin to talk about the bulldogs or, uh, you know, what did you kill this week when you went hunting or what did you catch when you went fishing or how's the job going? Or, and, and all of those things are important things. They're the things that we do and things that we enjoy. But what do we thirst after? And what do we talk about? And what do we treasure in our hearts? We're going to see that in a minute. Mary treasures these things in her heart. What is it that I truly treasure? Well, I can tell you this. Whatever it is that you truly treasure is what's going to come out of your mouth. And think about what you talk about all the time. Think about if God is keeping a record up there of every conversation that you have. How much of your daily conversation is about him and his truth? And we'd have to admit it's not much. But Jesus is concerned. He, he has a spiritual thirst for, to understand and discuss matters of eternal importance. To discuss the scriptures. And he knew where to find it. So in verse 47 it said, All who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. His understanding, another way to say that would be his insight. Like 12 year old kids are not supposed to think like this. The audience's amazement shows a respect for the question and the reasoning this young man had. They were astounded that someone of his age could grasp and understand the deep things of God. Well, why could he do that? Well, look at verse 40. The child continued to grow and to become strong, increasing in wisdom and the grace of God. It is God's grace and the gift of his Holy Spirit that gives us not only the desire, but the ability and the retention to understand his word and believe it and to receive it and to walk it and to share it with other people. It's a gracious gift from God that you can pick up your Bible and read it and understand it. So Jesus has this thirst for spiritual things, and they were all amazed at him. Now, when they saw him, this is his parents, they were astonished. And the mother said, child, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. What about me and you? Are we anxiously searching for Jesus? Wayne, we had a meeting after church last week. Most of y'all were gone, but Wayne said we had some things going on with the insurance. We needed to get some insurance put on the building. And what did Wayne say? I can't sleep until we get this taken care of. I got to know that if something were to happen to this building, we would be okay. And that's a reasonable angst. Yes. There's nothing wrong with that. But are we anxious about knowing the things of God? about having the assurance and the insurance that he died for us, that he's forgiven us, that we're his kids, that he loves us, that he's poured his grace upon us. How anxious are we in the mornings to pick up our Bibles and read and see what's going to happen to Job today? And if God's spirit is at work in our lives, we will find not an anxiousness like nervousness or unbelief anxious, but an excitement. Right? Your kids were anxious about getting up Christmas morning and open presents. And so we, his parents are astounded. They're astonished. And they said, why did you do this to us? 
they were amazed and they were relieved that he was okay. Like they thought they'd lost him. But remember, they should have known that God had already told them that that boy, what he was going to do. That boy's in God's hands and there is nothing in the world's going to mess that up. But there were parents and parents worry. And his parents has still not come to understand his mission. And that is one of the things that we're going to see all through the scriptures. As we go through this life of Christ, what you're going to see is that Jesus' family, Jesus' disciples, and the people that hear his message are going to constantly take things the wrong way. They're going to constantly mishear. They're going to constantly not understand what he's saying. Why? Because in our carnal, natural understanding, the spiritual things of God require the Spirit of God to help us to understand. And so, Jesus says to them, and these are the first words that we hear Jesus speak. If you've got an old King James Bible, this is the first time you're going to see red letters. And what did he say? Why are you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Some of your translations will see that I have to be about my father's business. Right? So, this is the first time that Jesus is speaking in the, in the scriptures, it, speaking out loud in a human voice. He reveals his focus on his calling and his purpose. I got to be doing my father's business. Now, his earthly adopted father was a what? Carpenter. And we're going to find out later that they call Jesus the carpenter. And the reason they do that is because he took over his father, his earthly father's business after his father died. But Jesus' most important role is carrying out his father's business. We are chips off the old block. We don't grasp that as much nowadays in our society as they would then because nowadays you can go off to college and be a doctor if your dad was a millwright. Yes. But back in that day, if, you were, if your dad was a carpenter, you pretty much guaranteed you're going to be a carpenter. Yes. And your kid's going to be a carpenter too. Like you were a chip off the old block. You did what dad did. And Jesus is emphasizing this point to us that he has come to do his father's will. And it's about his kingdom. And those are the important things. And it says that this house, I must be in my father's house, is not just about that temple, but it's about the whole realm of authority of what God has for him to do. His kingdom come, his will be done. And there there are several different ways in the Bible where we talk about houses. The Bible teaches you and me that our body is a what? temple for the Holy Spirit. But this, I must be about my father's business. I must be in my father's house. It's talking about in his father's will and doing the things that his father has called him to do. That was one of the reasons I put the sign out there. When we read that sign out there, as you came in this morning, what it say? I must be in my father's house. What did you immediately think of? I should be at church today. But it's not just about church. I should be in his kingdom and walking in his will and doing the things that he has called me to do. I must be about my father's business. I must be in my father's house. A couple more verses we've done. But they did not understand the statement. 
And again, I've already told you, there's this constant recognition of a struggle with his parents, with disciples, with those hearing him to grasp and to understand these things. So verse 51 and 52, we're going to get resolved what's happening here. It said he went down with them. Here we go. He went down with them to Nazareth. Now, again, he's going north 80 miles, but he's going down from the temple. And And it should be like that. There should be a difference about worshiping and loving God and walking and fellowshipping with his people. And every one of us in this room now are going to go down and get back into our routines, into our lives. You see, so I want you to picture that and think about that this week. The things of this world should be a letdown compared to the things of God. I can't tell you the last time we're Baptists and and we're, we're kind of straight folk. I, I can't tell you the last time I've seen somebody jump on me, yell, and scream at the preacher. All right, woo! But you sit down and watch a ball game with your friends and see what happens, right? Man, they get excited, and they're, they're in it. I can remember I used to watch football all the time, and sometimes at night I'd jerk in my sleep thinking I was in the middle of plays because that was important to me. I was, I was into that. I was enthralled by that. But leaving here today, we're fixing to take uh, the Lord's Supper together. After we leave here today, it should be like a letdown. Unfortunately, in our natural minds, it's usually just the opposite. I wish that preacher hurry up. I'm ready to go. You see what I'm saying? It's usually the opposite. But we have come to worship him. We've come to, to kneel to his word, to his truth, to his commands, to his love and his grace and his mercy. And it should be a coming up. And when we leave here, it should be a, well, we got to go back. All right, let's see. He went down with them to Nazareth. He continued in subjection to them. And his parents were, his, parents, his mother was treasuring all of these things in her heart. There was a subjection to his parents. Well, why? Well, he's the one that gave Moses the commandments on the mountain. And what did he tell him? What did he tell Moses? Honor your mother and your father so that your days will be long. And so the question would come in, was he dishonoring his parents when he stayed back in Jerusalem? If he was, he sinned. But what we learn here is that honoring your father and mother is found in its greatest examples in honoring our heavenly father. And there are going to be times when your family obligations are going to need to take a back seat to your eternal family obligations. Now, that's something that we have a hard time with, guys. I can tell you, I've only known most of you in this room for, for, since October. But you are my eternal family. Amen. You and I will be together in heaven in ways that some of my earthly blood will never know. But how often do we allow our earthly family to conflict with our obligations to our heavenly family? We're all, we're all guilty of it. I, and I'm not just pointing the finger at any of you. I'm telling you with me. And we need to balance that out. God would never ask you to dishonor your parents. Um, the ladies gave me an example at one time when they were taking care of their mother. One of you had to miss church. 
right? There's nothing in the world wrong with that. Because you were honoring your parents, you were taking care of your parents, you were performing acts of mercy. But every one of us in this room can think of examples in our lives where our earthly family takes precedent over our heavenly obligations. And we should struggle with that. We should wrestle with that. Every one of us. So, he was in subjected to his parents. Mary pondered these things in her heart. We see her doing that a lot, don't she? Uh, Luke one twenty nine, Luke one sixty six, and Luke 2.19, it says the angel spoke to her or someone spoke to her and she pondered these things in her heart. <clears throat> Jesus submits to his mother and his father's authority for the next 17 years. Now, at some point during this time, his father Joseph dies. And when we come back together next week, we're going to see that Jesus, in verse 52, had advanced in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with favor with men. And next week, we will begin his earthly ministry. We're going to see John the Baptist proclaim the way. You see? And so now the stage is set for us to watch him carry out his father's mission. His father has sent him to do something, and he is going to complete it. It will be a mission accomplished. And you and I should be able to delight as we read these stories and we grow in our understanding of what it is that he actually did for us. Now, with that said, on the table before us, we have a representation of what he has done for us. This is a visible proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a remembrance of what he has done for us. So I do.